You're listening to The Lower Light. Episode 3. Twisted Teeth. Audio file for Artifact 1855-M15, part of our Halloween 2017 exhibition. Laurie Caston, Head Curator Recording. Date of recording, the 7th of June 2019. Artifact 1855-M15 is a walnut case of surgical instruments dating from approximately 1800 and made by Savigny lined with maroon velvet. The case itself is much older than the instruments inside it, which Marie's research placed at around 1855. The instruments on the top layer are primarily for amputation, with an unusual and distinctive downturn at the tip of the blades, whereas the instruments on the bottom layer are primarily for finer surgeries and dissections. A brass plate on the case lid is inscribed with the name Robert McFarlane, as far as we're aware, it's an heirloom of the McFarlane family, passed down through three generations of surgeons. The reason why this case belongs with us and not a medical museum is the story of its last owner, Robert. He was born in Edinburgh in 1828 to Alexander McFarlane, a well-established surgeon. From early days, Robert was destined to follow his father's profession. The case itself was a gift from his father when he graduated, top of his class, from Edinburgh University, quickly making a name for himself as one of the most daring and innovative young surgeons around. He was 23 when he collapsed during surgery with a close friend, Dr David Campbell, and in a way his world must have collapsed too. Dr Campbell gave him the diagnosis, consumption, in secret, away from the scandal that would inevitably break, but the damage was done. His career wouldn't survive when people found out. Not wanting to have his family's name dragged through the mud, Robert quietly packed up and moved across the Atlantic. His time in America is still largely unaccounted for. From the little we can find, he moved to Hermansville, an inconsequential village in Massachusetts. It must have been there that he met his partners, Dr Jonathan Deer and Jesse Goodwin. When the pull of his work got too strong for him to resist, they would follow him back to Edinburgh in November of 1853. The Edinburgh they returned to was one of grave diggers and body snatchers, haggard medical students and crammed operating theatres. It was a city Robert slid into like a piece of a puzzle, quickly re-establishing his old practice and notoriety. It wasn't enough. Trust me, when you know your days are numbered, when you can feel the reaper breathing down your neck, nothing except salvation from that tenuous existence will satisfy. He must have spent sleepless nights wishing, praying if he was a godly man, which I doubt, and he must have cracked at some point. 
small section of the November 1854 front page of the Scotsman bore the headline, Renowned Surgeon Found in Greyfriars Cemetery. He had gone out one night, it claimed, only to be discovered the next morning, slumped at the foot of the black mausoleum, soaked in blood. Jesse Goodwin's letters home pick up the story from there. They were never sent, but bundled in a hat box instead, a diary of sorts. When Robert was brought back from the graveyard, something about him had changed. Something Jesse didn't quite understand. The pallid glow of tuberculosis remained, the flushed cheeks and glittering eyes, but the rest of the disease seemed to have left it. His kisses still tasted of blood, but they were different too. Sharper, teeth nipping playfully against Jesse's lips. Robert said he'd made a breakthrough, said he needed more cadavers immediately. Yet he wouldn't let Jesse or Jonathan into his laboratory. Usually they drift in and out, Jesse sketching whatever Robert had uncovered, Jonathan pointing out whatever he might have missed. Now the door was barred and they passed by it silently, exchanging worried looks. Once, Jesse tried to see through the distorted glass at the top of the door. He could barely reach, even balancing on a stool. It was dark inside, only a few flickering blurs indicating lanterns. Still, Robert was visible, a twisted, pale figure moving between tables like a ghost. He turned, and Jesse didn't even need to see his eyes to know he'd spotted him. A moment later, and the door opened, revealing Robert's exasperated grin. Jesse, I thought I told you. You can't be here anymore, he murmured. Jesse wanted to ask why, but his mouth was stopped by a kiss, and it was so awfully hard to be annoyed when Robert's lips were against his. Yet, something pulled him to glance over Robert's shoulder, into the lab beyond. Shadows hung like silks over the room, but he could still make out its basic features. A surgical screen pushed uselessly to the side. Four tables, each laden with a cadaver. Jesse had seen all too many of them. Somehow, the look of those four wormed its way under his skin. They were pale, bruised, just as a body ought to be. But they barely looked like bodies at all. They were too empty. To that, he didn't dare go near the lab. Didn't want to. Instead, Jesse went to find Jonathan. He slid into his lap once he found him, buried in a book in the drawing room. I'm worried about Robert, Jesse murmured, face buried in Jonathan's neck. Aren't we all, said Jonathan. His hand settled over Jesse's, gentle, soothing. I know, but something's definitely wrong. He barely comes out for meals now, let alone sleep. Have you seen what he's doing in there? Jesse's heartbeat fluttered in his chest. He was suddenly, painfully aware of it. We'll talk to him over dinner, love, said Jonathan, with gentle finality. They didn't get a chance to. When Jesse crossed the wind-whipped 
courtyard to get Robert for dinner, he found the door to the lab hanging ajar. Worry began to gather in his chest, apprehension telling him to leave Robert be, but he stepped inside all the same. The lab was a mess. All but one table was overturned, the surgical screen hanging in dizzy ribbons. Worst of all, the blood. It was everywhere, seeping into the wood of the tables, splashed across the floor in crimson gouts, saturating the surgical screen, coating Robert's tools strewn across the room. Numbly, Jesse picked one up, turning it over so the blade flashed in the light of the last flickering lamp. His fingers came away red, stained. With that, the illusion shattered. Something had happened to Robert. Jesse gave a single, broken sob, dashing back through the courtyard. By the time he returned to Jonathan, the only words he could get out around the tears were, He's gone. Almost in an instant, Jonathan was on his feet, heading for the door. Jesse trotted after him, trying to wipe away the tears that blurred his vision. He didn't even bother to grab his coat as they both plunged out into the freezing Edinburgh night. Robert, they both called out, listening for his voice. Nothing. We should split up, we'll find him quicker, said Jesse frantically. No, that's... Jonathan sighed, breath crystallising in the air in front of him. Remember how that went last time? I almost lost you. Anyway, he can't have gone far, maybe to the university. Edinburgh by night was quite a different beast to Edinburgh by day. The buildings seemed to lean in, leaving only a sliver of starlight above them, and a thin, sickly glow of street lamps to light their way. Jesse's stomach churned with anxiety, his hand numb as Jonathan pulled him along. It was bitterly cold, far too cold for Robert to be outside alone, especially after last time. It was too dark for either of them to read their watches. Only the toll of the church bells alerted them to the passing of time. Fifteen minutes. Half an hour. They'd reached the university, and of course it was locked up, stony and silent. They checked down every alleyway, every glimmering doorway, each one of Robert's old haunts. Jesse felt his throat closing up, tears stinging his eyes again. He couldn't afford to lose Robert. Neither of them could. He was the bright, burning star that lit their way. There had always been an implicit understanding in that. The brightest stars are always the first to burn up. Jesse just hadn't expected it to be so soon. Two hours dribbled away. Jesse was numb to the bone. So cold he barely even had the energy to shiver anymore. Neither of them were willing to give up, though. Jonathan paced beneath a streetlight, stamping his feet to try to beat some feeling back into them. Staring up at the wavering beam, Jesse wondered where else in this godforsaken city Robert could be. The answer came to him with a memory. 
Robert curled against him, utterly vulnerable. Breath coming in gentle sighs that fluttered against his cheek. Skin scrubbed clean when it had been caked in blood a moment ago. We need to go to Greyfriars, Jesse said. The graveyard was desolate, and Jesse's hands were shaking as he stood on the threshold. Without any moonlight, the graves were hulking, squat shadows. The black mausoleum standing above them all, dark with menace. Or it would have been, if its unfathomable darkness hadn't been broken by a thin, wavering figure. Jesse started forward when he saw it, only for Jonathan's hand to close round his wrist. Wait, Jonathan whispered. It was Robert, yet at the same time it wasn't Robert at all. He was wearing nothing more than a shirt, an undone waistcoat, hanging limp and red. His copper hair hung over his face, hiding his eyes. Worst of all, his skin. It was the awful, soulless pale of a cadaver, blotchy with bruises. Even from where Jesse was standing, he could see the blue veins pulling at Robert's cheeks. Jesse let out a strangled gasp, and a thing that was not quite Robert turned towards them. His mouth gaped, crammed with fangs that would have glinted if they weren't stained with blood. And once again, Jesse was painfully aware of his own heartbeat, thundering in his ears. The thing that was not quite Robert Keane. Jonathan's hand tightened around Jesse's wrist, getting ready to run. No, Jesse whispered. He needs us. And they exchanged a look, a silent understanding. Jonathan's hand slid into Jesse's. They stepped forward. The graveyard soil was soft beneath their feet their hands as cold as wedding bands. The thing trembled in front of them. It snarled deep and throaty. Its claws clacked as it drew back, ready to strike. Robert? Jesse reached out, throat tight with fear. Robert, it's us. We love you. One blank, swimming eye was visible through the curtain of hair. We're here, Robert, said Jonathan, louder than Jesse ever would have dared to. Come back to us. Come back, Jesse echoed. Come back, please. For a moment, the thing just stared and shook. Then it collapsed in on itself with a plaintive wail. The cry shattered in the midnight air becoming a devastatingly human sob. Now Jesse did run forward, shrugging Jonathan's coat off his shoulders. Now the thing was Robert once more, shivering desperately at the foot of the black mausoleum. We've got you, darling, Jesse murmured over and over as Jonathan put an arm around Robert, pulling him to his feet, pressing tender kisses to his icy cheeks. Come on, love, 
Let's go home. End recording. As for what happened to the case of instruments after that, it's more what happened to Robert. Traces of him, ephemeral fingerprints, are smudged across history from 1828, through the Second Opium War, to the last verifiable sighting of him. A field doctor going over the top with his regiment at the Battle of the Somme. The Lower Light is a gothic supernatural podcast. Our intro and outro music is The Lower Lights by David Coffin. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review or going to ko-fi.com forward slash the lower light to buy us a coffee and keep the podcast going. If you'd like to get in touch, please email the lower light podcast at gmail.com or head to thelowerlight.card.co. That's card with two R's for more information and transcripts. Until next week, may you have fair seas and following winds. <laughs>